Well, it is good to be back together, opening up God's word, continuing in our We Are series, where we are looking at the family values of our church. These are the things that are distinctive. They should mark us as both followers of Jesus and people who belong to this body. And so we are in our second week of growing disciples. And when I um, first came home, I was really excited. I was telling Lauren about all these new family values that we were working on. I was like, and we're growing disciples. And she said, can you clarify something for me? I said, okay, sure. She said, are we disciples who are growing in our faith or are we people who help other people grow in their faith? And I said, yes. Every once in a while, you say something, it means two things, and it means exactly what you want it to mean. And so last week, we looked at the personal component of being growing disciples, that we are people making progress to look more like Jesus. And this week, we're going to look at the missional component of being growing disciples. And, and the way that I would summarize this is that we are people at work to win people for and grow people in Christ. We are people at work. We are working hard to win people for Christ, to, to see new people come to faith in Jesus and to grow people in their faith in Christ. All right, and so the idea here is that Christianity is a missionary faith. And so my guess is, is that if you're in here and you're a Christian, as I look around the room, I, I see lots of faces who I know parts of your stories of how you came to know Jesus my guess is that if we had time to hand the microphone around and you shared your story, there would be a somebody or a somebody's in your story. That there would be somebody who you would point to and you would say, hey, this person at this point in my life, God used them to bring me into a relationship with him, right? I see heads nodding because we know that whether this was our parents, whether this was a friend, whether this was a mentor, whoever it is, that there's a somebody that God used to win you to Christ. And since God used somebody to win you to Christ, the logical connector is that he's going to use us to win people for Christ as well. And so as we, as we dig into the passage that Jimmy read for us, the Great Commission, it's a, it's a text that probably we've read before, we can reference, maybe we can even quote it. But what I'm afraid of is that for us, the church, not just this church, but the church at large, is that it's not a mission that you and I take personal ownership of. And so my goal this morning is to motivate us and inspire us to be people who personally take ownership of the Great Commission. And so when you think about the Great Commission, right, it's at the end of Matthew's gospel, right? Now, what you have to understand is that the gospel accounts are all a little bit different because God used different men to write them, right? And so each of them have different emphasis. Some of them are really, really concerned about getting all the chronology exactly right. Others don't care as much. And so Matthew, at the end of his gospel, he shows this as the first thing that Jesus says after the resurrection to the disciples and the last thing that he says to the disciples. Now, I don't think this is the first thing he said resurrected, nor do I think it's the last thing. But what Matthew wants us to see is that this mission is the point. 
that after Jesus is resurrected, there's all these things that Jesus said and did if he was on earth for 40 days, but he's going, hey, in light of the resurrection, here's one thing that you can't miss. And so what it feels like to me is it feels a little bit like a speech before a battle. And what I'm reminded of, though I have to admit, I have never actually seen this movie in full, but I have seen the clip that matters, is I'm reminded of Mel Gibson in Braveheart, where he's standing in front of his people. I know, Kyle, you're offended. I hear you. I'm sorry. I just haven't, I'm, I'm there. I got you. It's okay. Maybe I have some homework. It's fine. But there's this moment where William Wallace is in front of his people, and he's trying to say, hey, guys, you can choose to leave. You can get some pleasure. Maybe your life will last longer, but on your deathbed, you will regret not living for this. And it builds to, right? You can take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Yeah, it's, it's iconic. Even if you haven't seen it like me, you know the quote. I would have gone for a Scottish accent, but I'm getting <laughs> laughed off the stage, so I'm gonna leave it alone, right? <laughs> and so here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey guys, this mission is going to be challenging and costly. Some of you, in fact, the majority of you are going to lay down your lives for this mission. And he's saying, when it's all said and done, they might be able to kill you, but they can't take your inheritance. The thing that you're storing up for yourself in heaven, the joy that you're gonna experience for working for and seeing my kingdom expand is worth it, right? It it feels William Wallace-esque. And so like I said, my goal is for us to, to take personal ownership of this command from Jesus to make disciples. So with that in mind, let's turn to the passage. Starting in verse 16, it says, then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. It's interesting. If you fast forward to the beginning of the chapter, it's not Jesus who tells them to go, it's the women at the tomb. And so these guys knew the kinds of things that Jesus would ask them to do. And so they heard a command through these women as Jesus's direction. It's an interesting piece right there. Verse 17, when they saw him, when they see Jesus, they worshiped him. But some of them doubted. Now, let me me point out a couple things that are important for us to see. Jesus is crucified in Jerusalem. For them to go from Jerusalem to Galilee would have been about 100 miles, right? So Matthew's like, hey, crucifixion, they see him at the tomb, boom, they're in Galilee. We know that's not possible. It would have been possible for resurrected Jesus, not for the disciples. So some time has passed, and the disciples have in faith said, Jesus told us to go to Galilee, so we're going to take the multiple day journey to go to Galilee, So they have faith to move to Galilee. When they see Jesus, they worship or they bow down, right? They're responding rightly, but notice they're human. It says, some of them doubted. So they have faith, but they also have doubt. And that word that's used for doubt is not the normal New Testament word for doubt, right? So another way to think about it would be hesitation or reservation, and, and let's, just, let's just acknowledge, whether or not this is the first time they've seen the resurrected Jesus, 
before this point, they've never seen somebody get killed and raise and see them in person, right? If we're honest, I think we'd have some reservations as well. And let's just acknowledge, if you see something unbelievable, you're gonna have some unbelief. You're gonna have some reservations. And so I think it's encouraging that Matthew makes sure that we see that even though they have the faith to move, they still have some doubt, hesitation, and reservation. These are the guys that are going to change the world with the gospel. And when Jesus appears to them on this mountain in Galilee, though they have faith, they also have some reservation. And here's why that's good news for us, is because doubt doesn't disqualify us. Doubt does not disqualify us from this mission. And for some of us, this is good news because we're afraid that our fears, our insecurities, maybe even our imperfections prevent us from being able to be used by God. And that, that, that little phrase, some of them doubted, says, hey, that's not true. But here's what this also means, is that our doubts don't get to serve as an excuse for us not having to engage in this mission, right? There's two groups of people in the room. The group that's like, oh my goodness, I, don't, I sometimes have some doubt, maybe God can't use me, not true. And then there's another group that's like, I'm really scared and I'm not really sure what it's gonna look like for God to use me. God can use you too. And what this shows us is that God uses imperfect people to do his perfect work. And that is encouraging for all of us. He can use imperfect people who have hesitations to accomplish his work. Why? Because it's his work, his power. And what he's gonna say in verse 18 is it's his authority. Jesus comes to them. I love this. They're, they're probably bowed down in worship and it says Jesus comes to them. He moves towards them. Even though they have doubt, Jesus moves towards them. And he says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Hey, you have fears, you have doubts, but hey, the thing that you need to know is I have all authority, right? It's a big word in this passage, authority. Matthew cared a lot about authority. If you, if you read through all of Matthew's gospel and you look for it, what I think Matthew is actually doing is over the course of his gospel, he's trying to prove that Jesus has authority over all aspects of life. So you see him having authority over nature when he calms the sea, over disease, over demons, over sin, and ultimately death. And so Matthew is saying, hey, hey guys, let me, let me show you, Jesus is the one who has all authority and he has all control. And here's what I think is interesting, right? Jesus, God's son, he's always had a degree of authority that you and I will never fully understand. And yet there was something that when he stepped from heaven to earth where some of his authority was veiled, right? He emptied himself of his divine privileges and some of his authority was veiled for a time. And after he defeats death, he goes, hey, all authority is mine. Anything that was veiled, anything that was hidden, man, it is now open and on display. And it's in light of that authority that I'm gonna tell you to go, right? He's got all authority, which is good because you and I know this on, like a, on a human level, when somebody gives you a command, when somebody tells you to do something, 
it is limited by how much authority and how much credentials they have, right? Right, so if like if I, if I tell you how to throw a football, eh. If Dylan tells you how to throw a football, you're gonna listen. It's gonna go better for you. And so I was thinking about this this week. Um, Tuesday night, Ella and I went to the last home game for SCA uh, to watch Ben coach. And I say watch loosely because Ella was just running around on the track and watching is, I mean, a generous term of what we did. But Ben came, he said, hey, would you mind just coming and sharing some encouragement with our team? So I'm like, sure, I'll, I'll do that. So Ella and I were in the locker room, like right before the game started, which was fascinating. I'm like, you will never under any circumstances ever again be in a boys locker room. Um, you know, just having to have those conversations because it's possible she has a crush on Andy and I don't know how to feel about it. And we'll just, we'll just leave it alone. We'll leave it alone. But um, Ben goes through all these, these things offensively and defensively that are going to help them win. And imagine that me, someone who, as you can tell from, from my height, would have had nothing to offer, didn't play basketball at any sort of a level, doesn't know the intricacies of the game. Imagine I would have gotten up there and said, hey guys, I know, I know he's your coach. I know he has authority over the team. I know that he's like spent time playing basketball and coaching basketball at a college level. But let me tell you how you should play offense tonight. And imagine, I was just, right, here's what we're going to do. We're all going to imagine we're Steph Curry and we're just going to go for it. <laughs> it would not have gone well. Why? Because I don't have the authority or the credentials to issue a command. But you know who does? Ben. And let me tell you, they have, had, they have a very challenging season, but to see him honor the Lord and coach hard and inspire some guys and teach them what it looks like to persevere has been really cool to watch. And so the person who issues the command makes a difference as to what the mission is. And so I love, Jesus says, hey, it's because of my authority that I'm gonna tell you to do this. And he doesn't just tell them that he has power. He actually transfers that power to us. Acts 1.8 feels a little bit like Great Commission 2.0, right? Like 1A, 1B. And Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling pe people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria and, to, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So notice, Jesus says, I have authority, I have power. And after the Holy Spirit comes, he is transferring his power to us. He gives us his power to do his work. That's why the authority is so important. We are given God's power to do God's work. It's not something that we have to have the strength or the ability to do in and of ourselves. No, no. He says, I have all authority. I have all power. So you get to operate out of that. So he says, in light of my authority, in light of my power, therefore, right? See the connector there. Therefore, my authority, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. So we have Jesus's authority, and next we get the assignment. The assignment is to make disciples. And here's what I want to make sure we don't miss, church, is that I think in theory we would say, hey, this is an assignment, this is purpose, this is a mission that God has given all of us. 
But I think as we zoom out and we watch how most people participate in church, we operate like this is an assignment that God has only given paid professionals or super Christians. Too many of us are spectators and cheerleaders as opposed to participate participants in great commission work. And so I just want to ask, do you view the great commission or your job or the job of paid professionals? It's something that Jesus gave to all of us. And the reason we can step into it, remember, is because he gave us his power. All right, and so if this is our shared assignment to make disciples, what exactly is he asking us to do? Right, there's, there's lots of words, but if you, if you dig into the original language, the only command is that we make disciples. Everything else, the going, the teaching, and the baptizing, it describes how we make disciples. And so what does it mean to make disciples? It means that we win people to Christ and we lead them to grow. Right, we said that at the beginning. We are winning people, right? There's this idea that there's something at stake. There are people who don't know him, who are far from him. And part of making disciples means we actually make new converts, new believers into the faith. And we help them grow. So the word disciple is an educational tool uh, or educational term. And so imagine, imagine that there's this school. There's this, like, let's say for the sake of what we're talking about, there's a school of Christ. And imagine that what we thought about in terms of making disciples was only winning people to Christ. It would mean, I would go, I would get you, I would enroll you in this school. And then I would say, good luck. Hope it goes well. What, what, what God is calling us to do is to not only enroll people in this school of faith, he's saying, hey, you and I should operate like mentors and tutors to them in their faith. That we help them get connected to this thing and we walk with them along the way because you know what takes time? Life change. Transformation, conforming your life to all the things that Jesus commanded takes a really long time. You could argue it takes a lifetime. And that we need people who are helping us and we need to be helping people as we go about this. And so Jesus, I think, gives us some helpful things to think through in how we make disciples. The first thing he says is to go. And as I was thinking about this, the phrase that popped into my mind was that we move out to bring others in. Right? We, we go. And one of the ways we go is that we go on mission, meaning that we approach our life like a mission field. Right? So our, our, our school our work, our family, we approach that as our mission field and we live on mission, all right? And then the other thing that this, I think, demands us of is that we go in missions, right? It's why we have to care about the gospel being proclaimed to people who are lost. And when I say missions, I mean both locally and around the world, one of the last things I saw, I think there's like 6,000 unreached people groups in the world. 6,000 groups of people who, do, who don't know Jesus and maybe have never heard his name. 
But what, what's also fascinating, after doing a little bit of research, 50, only 50% of people in South Carolina attend church regularly. And in Spartanburg County, only 56% of people claim to be a Christian. So, so just, just think about this. 50% of the people that you and I interact with on a daily basis would say they're Christians and go to church. Here's what we know if you really dig into the data. Of those 50%, 100% of those are not actually Christians, right? You can go to church and not be a Christian, right? You can say you're a Christian and not be. So at best, one in two of every single, pe- every single person we interact with doesn't know Jesus. The reality is, is that's probably far greater. And so I think it's easy for us in the South, in the Bible Belt to say, well, you know, I think people around me, generally speaking, go to church and know Jesus. The data would show that's not true. And there's this new term emerging in the church called the great de-churching. And this is fascinating. Right now, since COVID, more people have left the church than who gained, who started going to church in both the first and second great awakenings combined. So since COVID, there has been a, there has been a more, the most dramatic shift in religious activity in America ever, and it's been in the decline. And so here's what that means. It means we've got to take this seriously that there is space and room for God to move. And I'm just believing, I'm just crazy enough to believe that if we would take ownership of this mission, that God would move through us, right? That on some level, at least, percentages would look different if we got in the game because there's somebody did a study, if every Christian made it their mission to do this with one person in six years, the entire world would know Jesus. So here's the thing. We don't represent every Christian in the world, but just imagine what could happen to Spartanburg County if this group of people said, hey, I'm gonna do this with one person. And instead of just kind of passively growing by addition, we saw God move through a multiplication because he poured out his spirit on a group of people who said, hey, we are going to go. We're gonna go on mission and we're gonna go in missions to try to reach people who don't know me. I'm, I'm, I'm believing that he would, he would work. He would move through us so that he gets the glory, we get the joy, and our community gets the good. So we go. The second thing Jesus says is that we baptize, right? And when you think about baptism, baptism is publicly identifying with Jesus, right? It's an outward symbol of an inward reality, just like I wear a wedding ring. Wearing this wedding ring does not make me married, right? Anybody who's engaged knows that, right? But what it does is it symbolizes an inward covenant and commitment that I've made before God with somebody else. And so that's what baptism does. And so I I think one of the questions I wanna ask is, is it's possible that you and I could know Jesus but have not yet been baptized? That's something that, that happens, but... When you read the New Testament, the New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who doesn't know Jesus. Think about Jesus's, Jesus's first message. Think about John the Baptist. What are they saying? Repent and be baptized. 
Over and over again, you see the first steps of faith that people are taking are being baptized, right? You think about thousands of people coming to know Jesus at the day of Pentecost, and it's like they were 3,000 were added to their numbers and were baptized that day, which let me tell you, having baptized multiple people before, they needed to sub some people in because your bicep, man, it gets it, okay? We call it baptizer's bicep. Listen, it's a thing. I don't know how many people they had to sub in that day, but my guess is it was a lot, and here's why they took baptism so seriously is they were saying, hey, publicly, I am aligning myself with Jesus Christ. And so that's why we put an emphasis on baptism today to say, hey, we need to be people who are publicly saying, I am pledging allegiance and submission to Jesus as my Lord. And I'm telling all other Christians, hey, I'm entering in to your covenant community with Jesus. We are on the same team. We're doing this together. That's why baptism is so important. And so if you're in here, you're a follower of Jesus, but you've never been baptized, let me encourage you, get baptized, right? It's the first step of obedience that Jesus asks us to take in the scriptures. And so if you've never been baptized, let let us help you take that step. Because ultimately you can't lead somebody somewhere you haven't gone. So he says, go, baptize. And then the last thing he says is teach, teaching them to obey all I've commanded, right? It's this idea of transforming your life. And like I said, obedience takes time to cultivate. Am I right, parents? Right, you, you tell them, hey, this is right, this is wrong. Do they start obeying immediately, always, the first time? time. Yeah, every time. I don't know about your kids. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Uh, I don't know where, where, where I hear the giggles. I don't know where y'all are at in your parenting journeys, but one of the new things is that um, when Ella gets angry, she likes to hit. Um, and sometimes, sometimes I know it's coming, but other times, like we were leaving my parents' house a couple nights ago, and Ella didn't want to leave, and so she was getting like passed around, giving people hugs, and she just decides she's mad and just whacks my dad in the face, which meant that not only did he get in the face, he didn't get a hug, and everybody else did, and I was like, oh, that's even worse. But here's what happens when, when, when we say, hey, Ella, you, you don't need to hit somebody. Here's the challenging part. I can get her. I'll say, what do we do? We listen and, and she'll say, obey. Right? I was, we can get her to say, hey, we don't hit. We can get her to say, sorry, daddy. And so she, like on some level, she knows that she's not supposed to hit. She, she has an understanding but it has not gone down full enough. It is not something that she has firmly grasped onto. It's not something that's actually transformed her and changed how she lives. It takes time. And that is true for us spiritually as well, right? It takes time for us to conform to God's word, to be transformed by his help, to live out full devotion and allegiance to Jesus. And so I do want to, I want to I take a moment and speak to our parents in the room this morning. Parents whose kids are still in the home, your primary mission field is your family. I literally paused and asked our teaching team this week. I said, is that an overstatement? And the answer I got was, you can't overstate it. I was like, I like that permission. <laughs> Guys, our primary mission field is our family. It is your job to train our kids, your kids to know Jesus. And here, here, make sure you hear what I'm saying. 
their salvation is ultimately not within your control. Okay, it's not. It'd be awesome if it was. But what is in our control is the decision to invest in and be involved in their spiritual life. And so I was talking with a buddy of mine who works as a college um, missionary. He and I had coffee this week and he's got like a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And so we were just talking about what does it look like to balance work and home and, and spiritual training of our kids and he said, I asked him about this idea of like, how do you like let go of one, like kind of let go of work stuff to engage at home? And he said, you know, what I'm finding is that when I try to um, kind of disengage from work, what happens is that I, I disengage too fully. And so since the work that I do is spiritual in nature, what happens is that the spiritual strength I bring at work doesn't make its way home. He said, what's been helpful is for me to shift and say, all day I work as a missionary to this school. And when I come home, what I'm doing is I'm doing the same kind of work to a different mission field. And I was like, oh, that's good. I like that. That's helpful, right? This idea that our home is a mission field. And here's what I realized. Not all of you work as missionaries, but you should approach your work as a missionary. We should be approaching our workplaces like a missionary. And so what happens is that, yes, we're going about our day doing our work, but we're looking for opportunities to go and make disciples where we are. And then we take that same approach when we get home. And, and here's what I recognize. It means that you don't really get time to shut off until that kid goes to bed. I Listen. Like every night, I'm like, can we put her to bed early? <laughs> and eight o'clock's her bedtime. And every time we leave her room at 8.15, I'm like, but 15 minutes, we should have we started earlier. And so here's what I realized. Parents, whether your kids are little or your kids are teenagers, you are tired. But, but here's the, this is what's just gotten on my shoulders recently is that we will be held accountable before God with how we stewarded our kids, the degree to which we invested in them. And hear, hear me say this, hear me say this. You can do all the right things. You can teach them Bible stories. You can pray for them. You can pray with them. You can take them to church. That does not guarantee the outcome. But we are responsible for how we invest and so before they know Jesus, we're praying for them, we're leading them, we're teaching them. And then guys, too often, having spent a long time in student ministry, what I've seen is that once a kid comes to know Jesus, take, parents go, cool, my job's done, I'm out. I'm gonna keep bringing them to church, but it's the church's job now. Don't do that. It is still your job to invest in ask good questions, cultivate your kids' faith even after they've decided to follow Jesus, right? You're not just enrolling them in the school, you're walking with them. And so yes, the church, we exist to partner with you as you disciple your kids, but parents, you and I are the, the primary spiritual trainers. We are the primary disciple makers of our kids. And I'm telling you, having spent basically a decade in youth ministry, this is not something that the church is getting right. I've done this all over the country with different groups of people. Let's start. What, like, I'm telling you, something would shift. Something would change if we took discipleship in the home seriously. 
And we're not responsible for anybody else, but we can be responsible for the families represented in this room. It starts in the home, but guys, it doesn't end there. We've got to be on mission wherever we go. And so I wanna ask, is there somebody at work or somebody in your life that God has given you concern for? Like as I'm talking about this right now, is there somebody who God's brought into your mind? My hope is that the answer is yes. Whether it's someone you know who doesn't know Jesus or someone who knows Jesus that is struggling. And here's what I wanna make sure you know. You and I aren't responsible for everybody, but the way that God moves is that you are responsible for somebody. That there's somebody that God puts on your heart that you don't fully understand why and you can't even articulate why. But their spiritual well-being, you know, God wants you to work hard at. You're on the hook for that person. And so how is God calling you to take this mission personally? Who is he calling you to invest in? How is he commanding you to step outside of your comfort zone? Right, is it initiating a conversation? Is it saying, hey, let's study this book or book of the Bible together. Let's be people who are eyes up saying, God, show me where to go. Show me how to lead. And God, I'm willing to go and make disciples wherever you lead me. And here's what I recognize, because I can feel it, is that this is intimidating, isn't it? The idea that we're on the hook, whether that's for our kids or for somebody else, we're like, ooh, I don't, like, it's, it's pressure. Here's what I love, is that Jesus gives us this command, but what he does is he puts it between two claims about himself that allow us to walk this out. So at the end of verse 20, he says, and be sure of this, be certain, be confident in this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So so think about what he said here. Hey guys, it is your mission to make disciples, but you are going with my authority and my power. And then he goes, hey, you have the assurance of my presence. It's my power and my presence that sustains you in this mission. And so we not only are given his power, but we are given his presence to do God's work. Right, so Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit is with you. Power, but also presence. The Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. He is present with you at work. He is present with you to give power to what you need to do. And what I love about what Jesus does here is it's like a a parent talking to a child when there's something new or difficult that they have to do. Like I come alongside of Ella and I'm like, hey, I'm with you. Let's go do this together. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey, there's this difficult thing that I'm asking you to do, this new thing that I'm asking you to do. I know it's intimidating. I know it's scary. I'm with you. So let's get to work. Jesus gives us the assurance of his presence. And so church, we have work to do. We are God's plan A to reach the world and there is no plan B. God has said, I am going to reach people through people and there's not, an, there's not an alternative. 
It's not like he's like, well, if they forsake their work long enough, I'll send some angels down. If it's there, I haven't seen it. It's not there, right? There's work that we have to do. And so let me ask, church, is there a step that you need to take personally before you can lead anybody else? Jesus said we're supposed to be people. We're supposed to be people who have believed in Jesus, expressed that faith in baptism, continue being taught these truths, and then we go, we make, and we teach people. Is there any place that we, we would be asking somebody to go where we haven't gone ourselves? I love how Paul talks about discipleship in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Like, hey, we're going in the same direction. If you follow me, this is where I'm leading you. I think it's challenging to say, is that true for me? That if people follow the direction I'm going, are we actually walking together towards Christ? So is there any step of obedience that Jesus is asking you to take? And then who is God telling you to move towards? Who is God telling you to go to, be present to? I think that if you read the New Testament and watch for how God moves, if there's somebody that God has put on your heart, right? if you look at the journeys of Paul, so many times what happened is he said, hey, we're gonna go to this place. And he goes, man, when we got there, it was clear God was already working in them for our arrival. And so what we can believe, church, is that if God is putting somebody on our heart, God is already working on theirs. So what would, what would it look like for us to move believing that the person God has put on our heart, God is working to soften in their heart right now? Let's be people who go believing that God can do, that God can move in ways that you and I don't understand. Let's pray together, and then we're gonna get a chance to sing. God, we are grateful that you have authority over all creation. God, that all authority is yours. God, one day, one day, everyone is going to bow before you. God, I pray that we would be people who live lives with a posture of being bowed to you now and that we work to bring more people in. God, we wanna be people who make disciples. We want to be a church that sees dead people come to life, to see lost people found. God, we know that they exist in our community and God, I am asking you, would you put people, put faces, put names on our hearts right now? People that we can't shake. We can't shake it because we know that you're in it. God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness to move. God, would you allow us to experience the joy of seeing you bring people into your kingdom? God, can we see people express faith in Christ for the first, first time. God, we know that your plan is to use us to do it. So help us, equip us. We know it's by your authority and power that we do it. God, we're grateful for that great, great privilege. We love you, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.